G'day everyone, uh, my name is Joshua Wakefield, I'm a mechatronics student at Deakin Geelong and I'll be reading the Bible for us today. Um, just before we do that, I'll pray for us real quick and then we'll get into it. Uh, yeah, dear Father God, I want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power that it has, the power to speak into our lives. Um, I pray today as we read your word and yeah, let it speak to us that You'll help us to receive it well and apply it well to our lives. In your name, amen. All right, so um, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, uh, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonourable, he will be a vessel for honourable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, having nothing to do with foolish ignorance, controversies, you know that they will they you know that they breed quarrels. 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Well, thanks so much, uh, Josh, for reading God's Word, and good to be with you all again. Uh, we're going to jump into this chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2. In chapter 1, we thought about going with courage. We're thinking about going with the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we saw three reasons in chapter 1 for going with courage. Now in chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the theme of going with godliness, and I'm going to focus in this chapter on verses 14 uh, through to the end, through to 26. Love you to keep your Bible open there as we get into this. Back in 1997, uh, on the basis of a tip-off, police raided a mansion in San Diego. Inside, they discovered a scene of mass suicide. 21 women and 18 men were dead. They were all dressed in matching dark colors and wearing Nike sneakers. They had all drank a lethal mix of a drug and vodka. Uh, why did this mass suicide take place? Well, it was at the time that a comet was coming near to Earth and they believed that they would leave their bodies behind as they took their lives and would be swept up into a spaceship behind the comet and taken off to Heaven's Gate, as you do. It's known as the Heaven's Gate cult. It's pretty wacky stuff. But it didn't actually start that wacky. The uh, leader of Heaven's Gate cult was Marshall Applewhite, and he began out as a reasonably orthodox Christian. And then to his Christian theology, he started to add uh, some more exotic things. He added uh, alternate theologies. He explored mysticism and astrology, and then he added in some personal visions of his own messianic role. And in the end, it led to something as bizarre as that. Now, I don't think we can just write this off as a crazy Californian cult. I could just as easily talk about the cult called The Family up in the Dandenong Ranges, not far from here. A cult that drew in many highly educated and wealthy Melburnians. Or I could tell you the story about one of my own family members who is a Christian, she says, and a clairvoyant. She also firmly believes in extraterrestrial visitation. And I have to say, some of her nonsense has caused enormous grief in our family. The painful reality is this. Bible-believing Christians 
can end up thinking and doing some pretty weird things. Cults don't usually start off weird. <laughs> if they did, no one would join them. In fact, oftentimes, cults start off with prayer and Bible study and serious levels of Christian commitment and a deep commitment to spirituality and to discipleship. But over time, things get funky. And down the track, sometimes they get downright evil. Of course, most Christians and most churches don't end up going into cults. But deviation from the truth, doctrinal error, gospel drift is common. You only have to think about many liberal churches here in Melbourne where they deny the virgin birth, they deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they deny cardinal, uh, cardinal truths of the Christ, Christian faith. And they didn't begin that way, but they've drifted to error. <laughs> you don't have to check out the internet much to find out what an astounding array of wacky teaching you can find that passes as Bible teaching and Christian TV or even Christian bookshops like Kurong can stock a lot of stuff that's not cutting the Bible straight. The ready availability of false teaching and the kind of seamless move from the gospel to error is nothing new. The New Testament actually constantly talks about it. And that's what Paul is doing here in these verses we're going to look at. He's warning Timothy about what's going on in the church of Ephesus, where he is. Have a look, uh, just as we get into this, at some of the warnings that he's raising. There in verse 14, he speaks about those who quarrel over words. Now... You know, that's not likely to happen in any AFES group. I'm sure you never have that. But trust me, there are places where people just love a debate. They love to argue. They love to go into bat for some obscure position. Maybe they're really passionate about some little detail in the book of Revelation. And those things preoccupy their conversation much more than clear gospel truth. In verse 16, Paul talks about irreverent babble. Have you ever encountered people who just go on and on about not very much, as if it were really important? Verse 17 introduces us to two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, whose teaching is spreading like gangrene. We'll come back to them. Verse 21 uh, talks about foolish, ignorant controversies. Verse 25 talks about opponents. That's opponents of biblical teaching, opponents of faithful gospel ministry. And the thing to note in this chapter, none of this is external pressure. This is other Christians who are being a pain in the neck. And you'll find that sometimes with the nicest of people. And you'll find it in small churches and you'll find it in big churches. 
You'll find it in CU groups and you'll find it in overseas mission organisations. All gospel work takes place in the context of error, sin, false teaching, difficult people, and divisive problems. That's reality. So how do we handle it? Well, Paul makes really clear in these verses that when you are dealing with difficult people and dodgy doctrine, it's not a cue to let rip. It's not an invitation to fire up and give it to them and smack them around and sort them out. As we go with the gospel, whether it's around the corner or to the ends of the earth, we must go with godliness. And there are three dimensions to that that Paul opens up in these verses. The first is this. We are to be skilled gospel tradies. We're to be skilled gospel tradies. When others are not godly in the way that they handle God's word, we must make sure that we are. Look at verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I take on a few home renovation projects, really enjoy it, but I never take on anything that requires high levels of precision. I like the kind of job where a two millimetre gap is really enhancing. Uh, I like going for the rustic look. Rustic means it looks old as soon as it's finished. I'm into um, shabby chic with an an accent on shabby. To be honest, although I really enjoy doing it, and I'm often quite proud of my work at the end, I don't want anyone else to see it. I'm like proud of it for me, but I don't really like other people looking at what I've done. I don't want them to look at it too closely. But the reality is, God will look closely at the work that we do for him. He wants us to rightly handle the word of truth. That's the phrase Paul uses in verse 15. And that phrase, rightly handle, literally means to cut straight. It's like sawing a piece of timber and it's absolutely dead straight. You do not deviate from the line at all. Cutting out a sewing pattern and you cut it out perfectly and immaculately. And and Paul is saying that's how we've got to cut it with the Bible. When we teach the Bible, we must teach accurately. It must be theologically precise. We must be careful in the way that we handle God's word. It's the very opposite to what Hymenaeus and Philetus were doing. Instead of cutting the Bible straight, we're told uh, in, in... the next verse, verse, in verse 18, that they had swerved from the truth. And actually it turns out, uh, as Paul describes that, that they'd taken a core doctrine, 
the resurrection and they put their own twist on it. It says they've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, of course, in a sense, they're right. The resurrection has already happened. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We have been raised with Christ and are seated with him in heavenly places. But that's not what they're saying. They're going much further than that. In fact, they're probably buying into an, an early version of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism saw the things that were physical and bodily as evil and saw the spiritual realm as that which is good. And in denying the resurrection, they are probably denying a bodily resurrection and saying the real resurrection is a spiritual life that we can have now and have fully. It's already taken place, they're saying. It's actually a kind of teaching which still lurks around. It lies behind some liberal theology that denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It lies behind some prosperity gospel teaching that says, basically, we can have the resurrection life, we can have heaven now. You can be fully healthy now. You can be completely holy now. Sin dealt with fully in your life. You can be materially wealthy now. If I use theological language, we sometimes call this an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is our understanding of the last days, the final things, when Jesus comes again. And over-realized eschatology is, is really looking for heaven on earth now instead of waiting for that which will come when Jesus comes again. Well, what Paul makes very clear in these verses is that such teaching is never harmless. Theological error is damaging. As Paul says here, it's leading some people into ungodliness. Verse 16 and verse 18, it's upsetting the faith of some. And then he uses that powerful imagery. He says it spreads like gangrene. I was once uh, uh, enjoying soaking in an outdoor natural hot water pool up in the mountains in the southern Alps of New Zealand. A bunch of us have been climbing and uh, high up in the mountains, there's this beautiful hot water pool. And so we're all soaking in it after a long day of climbing. And I was chatting to a guy from another climbing team. And as we chatted away, there was this point where he, he, he just kind of raised his feet because we were bathing in this pool. He, he lifted his foot and didn't have any toes. He told me the story. He'd been climbing in the Andes, South America. He got frostbite. Frostbite had turned to gangrene and it had to have all his toes amputated. Gangrene is a condition that occurs when tissue, body tissue dies because of a lack of blood flow. The skin goes kind of blackish, greenish colour. The infection spreads rapidly and often toes, limbs are amputated to save the person's life. 
when Paul says that their rotten teaching is spreading like gangrene, he's making a really serious statement about the damage, the deadliness of false teaching. It upsets people for sure, but verse 19 is so encouraging. The Lord knows those who are his. Even when there's false teaching around and it's unsettling people and and leading people astray, God is still faithful to his people. He still keeps and watches over his own people. But look at what it says just after that. Another quote, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Yes, God will keep his people. That's his wonderful grace. But dodgy doctrine is dangerous. It's iniquitous. Depart from it. Well, you know, if we're going to cut the word straight and not swerve as we handle it, we're going to have to acquire some skills. We're going to need training in handling God's word. And we're going to have to work hard at it. Paul says right back at the beginning of verse 15, do your best. That's actually why the strand sessions many of you are doing are so valuable. It's an enormous blessing to be taught well how to handle God's word. That's why there's such good reason to consider going into a ministry apprenticeship and spending a couple of years learning how to handle God's word and how to be faithful and cut it straight in ministry. That's why there's such benefit in going to theological college and spending time studying God's word and and biblical theology deeply. Look, it takes four years, is it, in an apprenticeship to become a builder? About four years at least to train as a teacher? What is it, about six years to become a vet? And uh, about 25 years to become a doctor? Something, something crazy like that. Some of you are probably chipping away at that. It's right and it's necessary that we also invest time into being well-equipped to minister God's word for a lifetime. There are skills in languages and exegesis and hermeneutics and church history and theology that we need to master so that we cut God's word straight. Good teaching sounds deceptively simple. Behind it, there's hours and hours, probably years and years of hard work. If you're into coffee, you can tell in a moment the difference between a good coffee and a bad coffee. But to a non-coffee connoisseur, even Nescafe Blend 43 passes as coffee. Now that's unbelievable. That's inexcusable. That's fake coffee. Well, if you know good Bible teaching, sound theology, then Blend 43 Bible teaching will not cut it. And so I actually want to urge all of you, whether you are thinking about full-time gospel ministry or not, 
I want to encourage all of you to invest this time now to become as skilled as you possibly can in handling God's word well for a lifetime of serving the Lord. Study it carefully. Read good Christian books. Find a church where you sit under good, faithful preaching. Say thank you to your CU and AFES staff workers who teach God's word well because that takes skill and it's a huge blessing. Sound teaching is a blessing. Dodgy doctrine is a disaster. A couple of years ago, I had a new garage built at my place and after the uh, foundation of the footings had been laid, the building inspector came around to check them. And as he came uh, to our place, he said straight away, I don't expect to find any problems with this. This builder always does it right. And you know, that's really what we want to hear God say of us. She's godly in the way she handles my word. He's godly in the way he speaks the truth of the gospel. That's the first way to counteract ungodly teaching. We need to become skilled gospel tradies. The second way is this. We are to be clean, honourable vessels. We're to be clean, honourable vessels. You probably know in, in uh, period, period dramas, they often like to play off what happens upstairs and what happens downstairs. Uh, you think of something like Downton Abbey, and upstairs you've got the, the lords and the ladies living in style, and downstairs the maids and the servants and the butlers. Now, there are vessels upstairs, gold and silver, fine silverware, um, gold vases, classy china, vessels upstairs that will never be seen downstairs. And downstairs, there's pots and pans and cooking utensils that will never be seen upstairs. Paul has a similar image in mind. Look at verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. Now, I don't know if he was thinking of Downton Abbey. I'm not sure whether he'd seen it or not. He might have been thinking about a first century household by a, perhaps a wealthy landowner who had servants and slaves. Or he might actually have been thinking about the temple, the house of God. The temple with its sacred offerings. But also with ordinary utensils for basically washing up and cleaning up the blood and guts afterwards. Or any of those images will work. Because the point is this. In gospel work, there are those who are honourable. They're like gold and silver. And there are those who are dishonourable. They're like wood and clay. And the household that Paul is applying this to is the church, the household of God. 
And he's really saying in the church, it's a mixed bag, especially amongst the teachers and the leaders. There are those who handle the gospel in the most honorable ways. They're like gold and silver, honorable vessels in God's household. And there are those who handle the things of God in dishonorable ways. They're wood and clay. And I'm afraid this year has been a shocker, hasn't it? For hearing about dishonorable leaders. What grief and pain many of us felt when the story about Ravi Zacharias came out. How tragic and painful it's been for lots of us listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. How incredibly sad it was to hear about Josh Harris first leave his wife and then leave the faith. And there have been many more and there will be many more. I just want to say Please don't be one of them. I say that to myself. I dread the thought of doing something that will undermine the last 30 years I've spent in gospel ministry. I know I have the sinful capacity to do dishonorable things that would devastate my family that would shake the faith of loads of people I've taught and invested into. And worst of all, would bring incredible dishonor and shame on the name of Jesus. It's a dreadful thought. We should fear falling and being dishonorable. In the media, we keep hearing about politicians and business leaders who've disgraced themselves. And the debate is always, does that disqualify them for office? That was a case here in Victoria just very recently. Liberal MP Tim Smith uh, crashed his car while drink driving. And immediately there was the debate, like, should he step down from office because he did that? And at first he, he declined to do so, and then about a week later he stepped down. The question is, you know, does his personal life matter to his public life? Well, we could debate whether it matters in the House of Representatives. But I can tell you, it does matter in the House of God. An honourable life, publicly and privately is pleasing to God. To be approved by God, you need to be a clean, honourable vessel. We're thinking this week about going to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The needs are great. The opportunities are many. But don't go. Don't go into ministry. Don't go into cross-cultural mission. Don't go if you're not a clean vessel. I'm not saying 
perfect. None of us are perfect. I'm just saying, don't go if there's stuff in your life that needs to be cleaned up first. That's challenging because all of us have private sins. We all have things we're ashamed of. It might even be that as I talk now about being an honourable, clean vessel, your conscience is burning. And I'd say if your conscience is burning, that's a good thing. That burning conscience is a gift of God to drive you to Jesus. I love what Paul says in verse 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That's, that's wonderful. He's saying you can be cleaned up. He's saying a dishonorable vessel can become honorable. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can be cleaned up. Only Christ, the perfectly clean vessel, the straightest cutter of the word ever, the best gospel tradie the world has ever seen, only he can clean us up. And so take to him the stuff that burdens your conscience, the things on your own heart. Confess secret sin. Confess ungodly desires and wrong lusts. Confess proud words and arrogant mindsets. Confess anything that's dishonorable before God. Plead for his mercy. Cast yourself on his grace and ask Jesus to change you. Ask him to clean you and to make you an honourable man or woman of God. Actually, we will never outgrow our need to do that. We're saved, aren't we, by repentance and faith, by turning away from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. That's how we're saved. And that's how we live the Christian life as well. The Christian life is a life of constantly repenting of sin, turning away from what's dishonourable and wrong, and constantly turning to Jesus Christ, the one who cleanses us and renews us. And as Jesus does that, here's the beautiful thing in verse 21. Vessels from downstairs can be used upstairs. Those who have been dishonourable can become useful to the master, ready for every good work. So in responding to false doctrine, dodgy teaching, babbling, irrelevant irre irre controversies, first of all, 
we're to be good gospel tradies, handle the word well ourselves. Secondly, we're to be clean, honourable vessels. And then thirdly, the last thing I want to look at in this chapter is we are to be pure, loving servants. Pure, loving servants. Paul finishes this chapter with a string of exhortations to Timothy. Let me read in, in verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Those are the exhortations to Timothy. When it says uh, in verse 24, the Lord's servant, that's Timothy, the gospel worker. Now, what kind of servants of the Lord are we to be? Well, verse 22 makes very clear we're to be servants who flee and pursue. Flee and pursue. First of all, he says, flee youthful passions. I think it's probably easy for us to assume that he's talking perhaps about sexual desires and temptations. But that's not really the context here. And there's no evidence that that particularly was Timothy's issue. This is flee youthful passions in the context of dealing with false teachers and babble and rubbishy arguments and gossipy, controversial theology stuff. What are the youthful passions that are likely to rise up when we encounter that kind of nonsense? Well, probably things like aggressiveness, hot-headedness, brashness, sorting them out, speaking, them, speaking too strongly in those situations. There's a risk I think this is a youthful passion. There's, there's a risk of being hot-headed and argumentative and impatient. Over the years, we tend to mellow a bit. Not everything is so black and white. We're not in such a big rush. We don't have to win every argument. The great Puritan preacher and pastor Richard Baxter reflected back on his life when he was an old man and he said this, the temper of my mind hath somewhat altered with the temper of my body. Now that's quaint English but I rather like that. The temper of my mind hath somewhat altered with the temper of my body. He, he goes on to observe, when he was young, he was much more vigorous and passionate and dynamic and probably more interesting. But he was also much more raw in his views. He writes this, When I peruse the writing which I wrote in my younger years, I can find the footsteps of my unfurnished mind and of my emptiness and insufficiency, so that the man that followed my judgment then was likely to have been misled by me, then that should he follow it now. You see what he's saying? 
over the years he'd matured and he'd settled down and he was less dynamic, but he'd become a sounder guide. I think that's worth thinking about if you're young. Your views will mature. Your convictions will grow deeper. Your experience of life will shape you and mellow you. So be just a little wary of holding forth on everything now. Flee the youthful passion for hot air. And the flip side is, well, look at the words there, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. And he goes on, if you look at the next couple of verses, he adds gentleness, kindness, patience, calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. The list is very much like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, isn't it? And what Paul is saying is the way, that, the way to combat error is godliness. The way to handle false teachers and troublemakers, annoying people, is the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to just have a, a think about this flee and pursue formula. That's how sanctification works. Sanctification is, is a work of God's grace in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit in which the Spirit is applying to us the finished work of Jesus Christ so that we grow in godliness, grow in holiness. The Spirit applies progressively the death of Jesus Christ so that we more and more die to sin. And the Spirit applies progressively the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we more and more live to righteousness. In sanctification, in growing in holiness, there's a death and a resurrection. You must die to sin. The older writers would have said you must mortify the flesh, put to death the sinful nature, and bring to life the new life that you have in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Both are necessary. You can never grow in true godliness if you're not putting sin to death. John Owen, the Puritan, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to put sin to death. The Holy Spirit makes us alert to sin. He, he quickens our conscience and convicts us of it. And that might make us feel guilty about it, bad about it, which is actually a healthy thing if we've been rightly convicted of wrong in our hearts. And then the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us, his death, enabling us to say no to what is ungodly. And then that same Spirit brings to life within us the new life in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit teaches us to say yes to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Timothy is to say no to godless babble and fruitless speculation. Say no to stupid arguments. 
Just let it go. Step away from it. And say yes to being patient and gentle and kind. Why? Why is this the response to ungodliness? Why respond to nonsense in this way? Because our aim is not to win arguments, but to win people. Look at verses 25 and 26. Correcting opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's what we want, isn't it? We, we don't want to win the argument. We want to see those people come around to love the gospel. We want to see them brought back to being sound and faithful. We want them to escape the devil's snares. Satan's trying to blind us and lead us away from the truth of the gospel. We, we want them to escape that and be captured to do the will of God, not the will of the evil one. When we aim to win arguments, it's all about us trying to look right. When we aim to win people, it's about us trying to show how good the gospel really is. And the gospel's beautiful. Jesus came to us, troublemakers, babblers, us with all our nonsense, and in gentleness and love and kindness and patience, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Well, friends, these verses are a reminder of reality, aren't they? When you go with the gospel, whether you go around the corner or go to the ends of the earth, you'll face annoying people, stupid arguments, dishonourable leaders and dodgy teaching. It's, I'm afraid, par for the course. But just make sure you don't play the course that way. Right through this passage, there's one main idea. It's the big idea of the passage. Godliness is the antidote to error. Godliness is the antidote to error. We must handle the word in a godly way. We must live our lives in a godly way. And we must deal with annoying people in a godly way. I want to encourage you today to prepare for a lifetime of being the most godly, honourable, clean, gracious, loving person you can possibly be. And you can be that person, and I can be that person, by the power of the gospel. Jesus can cleanse your heart. His death means you can be forgiven. His resurrection means you can keep growing in new life by the power of the Spirit. And his word rightly handled will build you up. In the words of verse 26, that last verse of the passage, 
it's, it's the truth of the gospel that sorts people out. It's the truth of the gospel that sorts out our opponents. But actually, at the end of the day, it's the truth of the gospel that sorts us out as well. In verse 26, it's the gospel that brings us to our senses. It's the gospel that will help us escape the snares of the devil. It's the gospel that will capture us to do God's will. 